And the Oscar goes to... <laughs> what a great job. You want to give them a hand? We usually don't do that after scripture, but that's, that was awesome. Yes, I did put them up to it. I, I did, uh, although they had some of their own clever ideas. I like that. Um, there's a couple ways you can read. That's one of the, one of the, when it comes to marriage, it's one of the passages that, uh, you know, people debate about. Uh, there's some controversy, you know, uh, some people would say, well, I don't know if that's for today, or uh, other people would say that definitely is. And um, one of the things I would say when it comes to those passages is they, they actually uh, showed us this, uh, an example of this is um, often we get caught up in what the Bible says to the person we're married to, as opposed to what the Bible says to actually us. And so it's like we're, it's like we're reading their mail way more than we're reading our own mail. And I found for me, uh, the times when I've got sidetracked in my marriage or sidetracked and, and, you know, uh, and hurt our relationship has been the times where I've been reading the stuff God's writing to my wife as opposed to taking seriously the, God, the stuff that God is writing to me. And when I get back on track is when I start reading the, God, the stuff God has written to me. So that's just a bit of advice for Ephesians chapter 5. Um, but again, thank you, Leighton and Sarah, for giving us a great illustration of uh, how it sometimes can uh, be adversarial. But I think God has meant for us to not be adversarial, but to be allies together. So what is marriage from God's perspective? What is marriage from God's perspective? We have two, next two weeks, we're going to look at marriage. And uh, today, I want to look at some of the most important verses from the Bible on marriage. And I'm going to start in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. It says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. So I want to come back to verse 27, because I think this is, this is one of the most crucial verses in the Bible about marriage. It says, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So God created male and female in his image. So both male and female are equal image bearers of God. It's not just the man that represents who God is to the world, but the woman too. And he gives them together the role of procreation, making babies, and of ruling over and caring for God's creation. That's what it says in verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth and subdue it. And one thing we learn right away here is that God created male and female sexually different. It's obvious that in order to be fruitful and multiply or in order to make babies, you have to be sexually different. That's the way it works. So we're equal image bearers of God, but we're different sexually all the way down to our cells. All the way down to our cells. Our cells have, well, if you're female, your cells have two X chromosomes. If you're male, it has an X and Y chromosome. And out of the, that difference comes so many other differences in the way that we are made. 
let me just, you can just Google this on the internet, differences between men and women, and you find lots of fascinating things. These are some of the things I found this week. Infant girls make eye contact longer than infant boys, especially when it's with a woman. And they're noticed, they notice and are drawn to emotion more. So if, you, if there's a face that, to be looked at and that face is emo, showing some emotion, they notice it um, more than the boys. Infant boys are busy checking out everything else that's going on in the room. And males are good at noticing uh, things. But another thing about sight is that women see color better. And they even think that women see, potentially see color in much richer tones and hues than, than men can. Young girls, on average, develop language earlier. But young boys are better at sound effects. <laughs> do, 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 yeah, that's us. Men are stronger. On, our, in, on the upper body, men are, 50, are twice as strong as women, on average. On the lower body, we're, women are about two-thirds as strong as the men. Okay, women are, men are stronger, but women live longer. Here's another one. 80, I read, just This is random stuff I got off the internet. This is not, no rhyme or reason for all these. 80% of osteoporosis patients are women. And men get heart disease a decade earlier on average than women do. Women's, brain have more, women's brains have more white matter, which is used for processing. So they, they can process, they have more to use when it comes to processing. And men's brains have more gray matter, which is used for thinking. So a man might say to his wife, what were you thinking? And a woman might say back to him, did you even process this? Our brains are different. I found this one. Women lose their hearing. When they lose their hearing, they lose it first in the low range. They lose the low, low tones. They can't hear them as well. Whereas men, when they lose their hearing, they lose the higher pitched tones in the upper range, which is crazy. That's why when you get older as a couple, she can't hear you and you can't hear her. This is one I've never heard before, but I found this week. It was on a, a site for hearing aids, but this is with hearing. It says, women lose their ability to hear vowels. A-E-I-O-U, sometimes Y, right? They lose their ability to hear vowels, and men lose their ability to hear the consonants. <sighs> I thought, wow. Now, I didn't go read and research on all these things. I just was, but I thought that was fascinating. Men have thicker skin. And women have softer skin. Women have a layer of fat under their skin that makes them softer to the touch than men. It's like God Botoxed them in advance. You know, he's just... But there's all sorts of difference, and this is just some, but there's so many different ways that we're different. We're different physically. We're different phys uh, even psychologically. The way our, our brains uh, process things, we use different... Uh, parts of our brains more or less than each other. And that doesn't make men better than women or witter, women better than men, but it does make men and women better together. 
So here's God. He forms the man. He puts him in the Garden of Eden. He gives him rules for life. And he says about man, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a suitable helper for him. So here he is given this amazing partner in ruling over and taking care of creation. And you know, through the creation account, God declares on the first day that it's good, and the second day it's good, and all first five days he says, good, 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 good. But then on day six, when he makes humanity, man and woman, he says, it's very good. And the only thing he says that isn't good is man on his own. Before, man before woman is not good. That part of creation isn't quite complete. So hooray for women because when, when Eve comes along, take, it takes something that's not good and it upgrades it to very good. And I think as men, we recognize that in our lives, that the arrival of women in our lives has gone from not good to very good. We're definitely better together. So the second passage I want to go to is, I've got about seven I'm going to go through today. Just really, these are key verses about marriage in the scriptures. The second one is Genesis 2, 23 and 24. So the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. So when Adam meets Eve, Adam is amazed by Eve and we have his poetic words about her that are probably way more um, in awe of what she is than what, than what we can understand when we read them today. But that's, this is what he says. And, and so he's saying, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. There's a sameness about her. It's, she's, she's similar to me. She's not like a horse or a dog or all the other creatures he would have seen. She is like me. She's wonderfully similar to me. The same human essence. There's an equality here. She's just as human as I am. And then he goes on to say, she should be called woman for she was taken out of man. So he's saying, well, but she's not totally the same. She's obviously different and wonderfully different from me. So Eve is a full equal with Adam, yet different and opposite than Adam. And that's why the next verse says, that is why. This equality and difference, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. So after God introduces the first man to the first woman, he introduces the concept right away of marriage. And marriage, according to God, is a male and a female coming together to form a one flesh union. So you've got a male and female who are sexually different, They are woven into the fabric of human creation, and they are the ingredients for marriage. When Scripture talks about marriage, it says that sex difference is an essential part of what marriage is. And there's very little debate. There's very little debate. In fact, almost no debate that this is the main marriage statement of the whole Bible. There's several statements, but this is the main one. In fact, it's the, it's the statement that Jesus quotes later on. It's the statement that the Apostle Paul quotes later on. People keep coming back to Genesis 2.24, and they keep quoting it again and again because it's, it's sort of that foundation of what is marriage. And then this passage ends with, Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So there's no sin or selfishness yet in their relationship. Can you imagine having a relationship like that? No selfishness? 
I, you can't even get your head around it. He's like, because we're so used to selfishness in our relationships. We're so used to, um, in our relationships, even discovering how selfish we are. But here, they, they were in this relationship where there was no shame because there's no sin. There's no fear in relationship with them. They could be totally intimate with each other, and there's no insecurity because there's no threat of being rejected. There's no threat of the other person being selfish. Incredible, incredible creation that God made. Here's the third passage, Matthew 19, 3 to 10, and this is Jesus. So some Pharisees came to test him, and they asked Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now that was, many believed that that was the right of a man, that he could divorce his wife for any and every reason. And so they bring that to Jesus, and Jesus says, haven't you read... He replied that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate it. So this is pretty familiar to us, right? Jesus takes uh, Genesis 1.27, and then he takes Genesis 2.24. He takes those two, and he, he, he puts them together. He puts them together. He says, if you want to know marriage, if you want to understand marriage, you've got to understand what's already been written. Haven't you read that? And then he makes his comment at the end. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And therefore, what God has joined together, that's pretty important. When you get married, you say, well, we came together. We married each other. Well, there's a way in which you were joined together by God. You say, well, maybe you weren't even Christians when you, you got married. Well, at least you'd have to admit, admit that you bought into God's franchise. I mean, he, he's, the, he's the inventor of marriage. He's the one who brought it to be. It was his idea. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What God has joined together, let no one separate. So they go on and say, well, why did Moses command that a man could give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away. Again, divorcing for any and every reason is, is the theme. And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. Remember, there once was a marriage where there was no sin and selfishness in it. There once was a marriage like that. But when sin came into the world... Bitterness, resentment, selfishness, hurting each other and, and being wounded and rejecting each other, all sorts of conflict and that came into the world and hearts got hard. Hearts got hard. You know, one of the interesting things about um, sometimes having a chance to, to speak into people's marriages as a pastor is that um, you're always trying to figure things out. Like, you know, people... Um, when, when people are maybe going to get divorced, sometimes it's, like, there's lots of debate within, I'm saying there's no debate about what marriage is in the Bible. It's really clear. But there's a lot of debates about other things, like when can you get divorced? Uh, or uh, even men's and women's roles in marriage. There's lots of debate about those things, right? So lots of things back and forth. But one of the things I, I, I find is interesting sometimes when I'm trying to help a man or woman, it's like, what's really going on? What's really going on? It's, you know, it's very interesting. When you're in a relationship, 
you often can't see the forest for the trees because you're so emotionally involved in the relationship. And I'll just give you a, a little bit of a tidbit. One of the things I'm amazed at is how well somebody, like a third party, can see what's going on sometimes. But you can't see it when you're in it. You can't see it when you're in it. And so sometimes a third party can be really helpful to you in a marriage. And I really encourage you, I'll probably say this again next week because I think it's important, but um, if you get into trouble in your marriage, um, don't wait forever to get help. Sometimes someone, I mean, I'm, I'm not talking just ask anybody. Someone who does confidentiality well, someone who knows about the grace of God, so they're not just going to, you know, totally condemn you, but also wants to help you get past sin and selfishness. And they can help you, you know. So, so some marriages, it's like, well, what's going on here? Well, it's, it's abuse. You might need someone to help you to clarify that. You also might need someone to say, well, maybe it's not abuse. Maybe it's just, it, it's just resentment and bitterness has built up, and it's a hard heart we're dealing with. And so in a lot of these scenarios, Jesus is saying a lot of scenarios in marriages, it's hard hearts. But that's not the only scenario. So sometimes you need a third party to help you figure these things out. But obviously, one of the dynamics, and I'm talking about this dynamic, I think, a few different times today as I shout about it, is that men have the ability to divorce their wives more than women have the ability to divorce their husbands. And it was almost, too, it was way too careless for any and every reason. For any and every reason. And the outcomes for the woman were quite severe. They would be left basically destitute when they were divorced. So here were men who could make a decision quite almost carelessly, and the outcomes for the woman would be catastrophic. And so Jesus is confronting that, and he says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Okay? And here's the next thing that uh, Paul also has a little bit more on this as well. He talks a little bit about abandonment and stuff like that. And there's more things to think about. And where does abuse fit into all those? Those are all different things. But number 10, uh, uh, verse 10 says, The disciple said to him, If this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. And I, when I read this, I sort of hear it a little bit through the lens of entitled guys. You know, well, boy, you know, it seems like I, I, I really thought marriage, I, you know, it was all in my favor and everything was going to go my way. And if I didn't like it, you know, if she burnt my toast, I could do away with her. And you're saying no. Well, then, what good is marriage? What good is marriage? That's how I hear it a little bit. And I'm not saying that's exactly how it is. I don't, I'm not the, you know, I wasn't them, so I don't know. But when Jesus is laying down... His meaning of marriage, his understanding of marriage. He comes back to show that this is, this is supposed to be a pretty stern thing, a pretty sobering thing. Actually, it's supposed to be the kind of thing that can withstand an awful lot of sinning. Like in any marriage, there's going to be sin. We're not living in Adam and Eve's reality when they first started out where they were naked and unashamed and no insecurity and no fear and there's no, re- no threat of rejection. We live in a different era where sin and selfishness rear their ugly heads in our relationships. But God has created marriage in such a way 
And the design is that it, it could withstand a lot of sinning. It could withstand a lot of um, selfishness. And so when you go towards marriage, you should go towards it soberly. Really read those vows. Right? My brother, he asked me the question when he and his wife were getting married. They met at art college, uh, art school, whatever, in Calgary. And, uh, and they're both artists. And they said, is there anything from a traditional wedding ceremony that we need to keep or can we change it all? And I thought, oh, this is going to be a doozy of a wedding. <laughs> so I said, I'm, I, you can change everything. You don't need candle lighters. You don't need this. You don't need that. I talked about I just said, Get, the vows you can't change. Well, I mean, you can change the vows. But I said, if they're not vows of substance, if they don't say, you and me, baby, only till death do us part, get someone else to do your wedding. Like the vows are the central part. So it was, it was very fun because they did change almost everything else but kept really solid vows. So she came down the river in a canoe that her father was paddling. And then my brother was dressed up. He looked a lot like a Jedi, actually. And he had some flowers sewn into his beard. And, uh, you know, and then my other brother was there as the town crier. And then my uncle was playing his flat bugle. And I was, I was like, all right, we're having a time of it. This is truly an Atkins wedding. But the vows were solid. So I was like, the core of it's there. And that's what, you know, that's what the, the central part of a wedding is the vows, right? I take you to love and cherish and for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, till death do us part. That was all there. And I was like, good enough. Good, good enough. Right? So the historical view of marriage is that it's a one flesh union between two differently sexed individuals. It takes a man and a woman to the exclusion of all others. This isn't debated. This has been true for 2,000 years. This is, um, this is something that has global, historical, multi-denominational 2,000 years of agreement on this definition of marriage. This isn't my opinion. This has been the consensus view among Christians for 2,000 years. Protestants agree. Catholics agree. Greek and Russian Orthodox agree. Coptic Christians in Egypt agree. African, Asian, South American, European, and North American Christians for 2,000 years have all agreed that this is what marriage is. That's what Christian marriage is. So, in the, in, here in Canada, we have, our government has a definition for marriage, and so this is their definition. Marriage, for civil purposes, is the lawful union of two persons to the exclusion of all others. So it doesn't have the distinctive of two differently sexed individuals, like Christian marriage does in the Bible, male and female. But it does still retain something from Christianity, and that is to the exclusion of all others. And that is a, that is a, that is, that comes, we have that in Canada, and that is in our laws today because of our history with Christianity. Here's the fourth passage I want to look at. Ephesians 4.32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Now, I'm sort of cheating using this one because this is not really a marriage verse. It's not specifically about marriage. But I share this verse at pretty much every wedding I ever perform because kindness is crucial in marriage. And it doesn't just say to be kind. It doesn't just say uh, to be gentle. Or, or, but it says how to be kind. And so I think this verse is just a gold mine, and I, 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 again, I do share it 
I, once I discovered this verse, I just shared it at, at wedding after wedding after wedding because it's so powerful. Be kind and compassionate to one another. So your kindness comes out of your compassion. Do you actually have compassion for the other person? If you do, you'll be able to act in kind ways. But how do you maintain your compassion for the other person as they're sinning against you? And you're sinning against them, obviously. You do it by forgiving each other. And how do you forgive each other? If you want a, whole, a little bit more of a full treatment on forgiveness, you can go back to my message from December 26th on Boxing Day. It was all on forgiveness. And I used lots of illustrations, real-world illustrations of people who forgive an incredible, awful injustices against them. Because they knew themselves as sinners who didn't deserve the forgiveness of God, but still received it because he was so forgiving. And so, this is how it works in the Christian life. How do you be kind all the time or most of the time? Well, you've got to have a compassion for the other person. Well, how do you have a, maintain compassion when they sin against you? Through forgiveness. And, well, how do you forgive? You know, because we run into that wall. I just can't forgive. Well, look at how Christ forgave you. The bigger that is in your life, the more empowered you are to forgive, yourself, forgive others who sin against you. So, uh, Tim Keller, a pastor from New York, he, he gives great advice. He says, if you're, if you're looking for someone to marry, make sure you pick someone who's a good repenter. Because you're going to be doing that a lot. What does it mean to repent? Repent means to change your mind and change your behavior. So when you sin against somebody else, you come to realize what your sin did to them. So I'm not just talking about someone who apologizes when they get caught or something. That's not what I'm talking about. Because that can short-circuit the process. So someone said, man, you really hurt me. And Oh, okay, okay, I'm sorry. Let's just get on with life. That's not actually repentance. Repentance is like, okay, tell me how it made you feel. Help me understand what my actions did to you. And then it's like, okay, now that I know the pain I brought into your life. Now I know what I did. I am sorry. And I, I desire to change. So that's what repentance is. Change your mind. Change your action. I didn't think those things I was doing was such a big deal. But now, being married to you, oh, you help me understand. And so I repent. So if you have two great repenters, Two people are always repenting and forgiving each other. People are drawing on the forgiveness they've received from God. They see their sin as great. They see his grace as greater. And that's such a big dynamic in their thinking and in their hearts. And then they come to the still painful things that happen in relationship. But they're able to forgive because they're drawing on a much greater forgiveness. And this is what God wants to do in us. He wants us to put off our old self, our old patterns. And he wants us to put on a new self. He wants to make us like Jesus in our character. So Jesus forgives, and he can forgive anything, and obviously he did that on the cross. And so now I want to be like him. I want to be like Jesus in this marriage. And both husband and wife can embrace that, that they want to be like Jesus in this marriage. So be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Here's the fifth one. Colossians 
Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. What's the opposite of being harsh with your wife? It's gentleness, it's kindness, it's compassion. You could imitate Jesus in this way. Now, I've got a little bit to say to husbands today. Um, Ephesians 5, the one we read at the very beginning, talks about you know, husbands who, who lead and wives who submit. And it's a little bit, uh, you know, and husbands who love and wives who respect. And, and, and some people find this very troubling, right? So some people would say, there's two main views. One, like, like all Christian views of marriage would have the same uh, basic foundation, that men and women are equal in worth, they're equal as image bearers of God. Like that would be the foundation that everyone had. But then they would dis- disagree. There's some disagreement between people on the roles that they play. Are men and women's roles completely interchangeable? Or are they, as they seem to be in Ephesians 5, are they different? Right? And so that's where some people debate about these things. And I'm not here to make a you know, huge persuasion for one over the other today. But I do think there's a... I do think there's a an importance for if you're, especially I'm speaking to husbands right now or, or men who like to be husbands, is that you look at what it says about the role of the husband in Ephesians chapter 5. You look at what, it lo- what it's saying there. You, you might have a way that you see that doesn't apply or something, but you, you really look at what, it, what it's talking about. Um, when you talk about a husband who leads what, well, okay, how can that be good? How can that be good? Oh, first let me tell you this. I'm really interested in this, and I, I'm, a little while ago, I was reading, um, sorry, I need to fumble my papers a little bit here, but, and I've shared this with you once before as a church, I think, but there's a great uh, sort of a study done, and it was released in the New York Times, and it has this really, I think, very ill-conceived title. Religious men can be devoted dads too. It's like, how kind. How kind. Good. Thanks for including us. Um, so I think it's, you know, they're trying to, you know, maybe almost apologetically um, say what the study showed. And this is what the study showed. Was they, they, they had four, they had two, yeah, four variables. Does a couple see themselves as uh, secular or religious? And does a couple see them, their view of marriage as progressive or traditional? So that was how they, they would put it, right? So they, they, and then they said, how happy is your marriage? And they had several factors that they looked at. So here's what they got in the end. They said, well, um, the, on the progressive side, let's just take, couples say, we're progressive. Men and women, exact same roles. No role difference between men and women. Okay? So that, that's the progressive uh, viewpoint that they had. That if they were secular and progressive, that about 55% of them said, we've got a pretty great marriage. 55%. But if they were religious, now let me say religious, that's how I see it. It's an American study. Most people responding to this are Christians. If they say they're religious, they're responding because they're Christians. So it's mostly Christians who are, who are saying. So if they were progressive and secular, 55% were happy. If they were progressive and religious, or mostly Christians, it went up 5%. So there's 60% of them said that they were 
very happy with their relationship. So, inviting Jesus into your marriage, if you're progressive, you get a 5% boost. Great. That's awesome. 5% better in your marriage? Who wouldn't want that? That's actually awesome. That's really great. But here was the other side. What about if you have traditional views? You view that, you know, uh, men are supposed to lead and women are supposed to follow, or, or men and women have slightly different roles. There could be lots of variation under this category of traditional. So let me just say that. So the traditional ones who were secular had the lowest scores, 33%. So men are in charge or men lead, but God's not a part of this. They're the most unhappy marriages, 33%. So what happens when they add Jesus to the mix? What if they're followers of Jesus? Then they had the highest scores, 73%. So if you take someone who has a traditional view and say, well, you know, I think men are supposed to be leaders and women are supposed to follow and stuff like that, and you don't have Jesus in the mix, this is my theory. I think it leads to use and abuse in many marriages. I'm not saying that you can't have a happy marriage. Obviously, 33% of them do. But the difference maker, the difference maker is when Jesus comes into the picture and when the husband, I really believe this, when the husband begins to model his leadership, his expressing the roles differently, like Jesus does. That's where you get 40% difference from 33 to 73. That's, so I read that and I thought, oh man, if I could go after that 40%. If I could go after that 40% today. Guys, if we, if we, if we, if we have some sort of view, even mildly traditional or somewhat traditional, and we do it like Jesus, Wow. It's going to be different. It's going to be happier. It's going to be, there's going to be a real big change. So let me just talk about more about being a husband here than I will be about the wife side of things. But I want to see that difference in our lives. So what does it mean to, to lead? I think there's two ways that you see people lead. Some people lead like, they're, they're like, what do they like about leadership? I'm in charge. You'll see this in the workplace all the time. It's like, I think they like being in charge too much. And it's not great for the rest of us. And then you see other leaders who they just take on the responsibility of being in charge. And it's better for the rest of them. So I would say when you think of it, oh, well, the guy is just in charge. I would say that if you're a guy and you're, you're trying to walk this out honestly and, and authentically, then make it about carrying responsibility rather than getting your own way. Carry a big load. Some of the traditional views about what a man should carry are probably the areas of protection. Right? You should protect your wife. The NIV, when it comes to the... There's another passage in Malachi 2.16 about divorce. And it basically says... Um, God saying, here's these guys who... They divorce their wives. They're showing hatred for their wives in, in divorcing their wives... The very one, the wife of their youth, I think is the phrase it used. The very one that they should be protecting. And God is very upset at this behavior. 
But in it, I, I read it, and I go, I think there maybe is a role for men to protect. Here's a way, uh, let me just give you a real practical one. Because I, I don't know if I'll ever be in a fist fight in my life. And if I am, I think my glass jaw won't leave me in that fight very long. And maybe just long enough to say, honey, run. <laughs> you know? But there's so many other ways to think protectively towards your wife and towards your family. Here's one. You've got two cars. One's safe, and the other one is an accident waiting to happen. Which one is your wife driving? And which one are you driving? I think if you're a guy, you say, I'm going to drive the one that's dangerous. Because I want my wife protected. Right? How do you think about the home and how it, how it functions? And, and how, you know, my wife, when we were just getting married, she said, one of the expectations I have for you in marriage is that you'd lock the doors every night. And I said, that's insane. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. The last person up should lock the doors. That makes sense. And she says, well, my dad always did it growing up, and it made me feel safe. I said, you know what? I still think it's nuts. <laughs> but I'll do it. I'll do it. So it doesn't happen very often, but now and again it does. I'm in bed. My wife comes up, and she'll lean over and she'll say, did you lock the doors? I say, I'll go check. <laughs> it's crazy. You have to be nuts to be married. <laughs> but it's so good. It's so good. So, men, one of the great things, I, I want to say, if you're a guy and you're not married and you're sort of wondering if it's just a raw deal for a guy, I want to tell you a couple benefits that probably they aren't even telling you about. I mean, you often hear the benefits. You live longer and then people go back. It just seems like it's longer, whatever. Here's some real benefits. Here's some real benefits to you. One, it will expose and challenge your sin. It will expose. You don't know how selfish you are. When you get married, you get a good glimpse of it, though. Like when I first got married, I was like, oh, my goodness. I did not know I was this selfish. But now I have this other human being who's very different from me, and she's reflecting back to me how selfish I really am. And it's actually true. So it'll expose your selfishness. It'll give you a chance to grow. I mean, other people, not just your wife, other people will be happy that you were married and that someone showed you what a dirty, rotten scoundrel you are. <laughs> They'll give you a great chance to grow. So many times we avoid intimacy because we don't want people to see how broken we are. We don't want to see people how selfish we are. But you know what? You can't avoid it in marriage because you're stuck with each other. And that's a beautiful thing. Because it give you an incredible chance to grow. Here's the other thing. If you're thinking about getting married, young guy, it will harness your strength for good. God gave you strengths. He made you strong. But I see... Guy after guy after guy after guy, and their strength is dissipating. What do I mean by dissipating? It means their, their strength is wasted. It produces no real good in the world. And I know nothing better to harness the strength of a man than marriage and parenting. 
It's a powerful thing in your life. And it takes your strength, which could be what I think of waste. Like, you know, do this to a dad. This will be great. Go through the house. Turn all the faucets on. Just let them run. What is the dad thinking? I pay for that water when it comes into the house and when it exits the house. I pay the sewer fee as well. And it's doing no real good. It's a waste. It's just pouring down the drain. What are you doing? And you'll get a good lecture from your dad if you do that. But that's like men's strength. God's made you strong. But if you don't partner into relationship to make things good for other people, and it doesn't only have to be marriage. So if you're single and you're saying, oh, wow, my strength is all dissipated. That's not true. Just get into partnership with people. Make sure that your strength is harnessed to benefit other people. I had a young dad tell me just this week, he said, man, you know, just had, you know, their their first kid, young little baby, cute little baby, tell me, I'm so tired. I come home, and then I spend some time with the baby, and then I'm just so tired. It's not like when I used to be able to spend more time on other stuff, and I go to bed exhausted, and I thought to myself, I didn't say that to him, that's what's supposed to happen. Men, you're supposed to go to bed tired because your strength was being harnessed for good. You're supposed to serve. You're supposed to work. You're supposed to provide and protect and initiate. And when you're totally exhausted, get down and tie a little one's shoes and humble yourself in that way. And If you fall into bed exhausted every night, guys, not that I want you to be exhausted. I'm just saying, yeah, you're probably doing something right. Probably. It'll harness your strength for good. I hate to see a young man's strength unharnessed and just wasted and wasted and wasted and just serving themselves. Because they could have been a big tree, but they ended up just being a sapling. And God's desire for them is so much better. You know, the interesting thing, because women outlast us, they're going to tell our story. They're the reporters on our lives. Like, when I'm gone, my wife's going to say stuff about me. Maybe she's going to say, you know, Steve was wrong a lot of the time. (laughs) It's probably true. So, invest yourself into marriage. What is submission? You say, well, you know, the submission for, the Bible's talking about submission for women. Well, guys don't have to submit. They've got this cushy. What does submission for guys look like? You know what it looks like? Love your wife. Love your wife. That's what submission for guys looks like. Love your wife. And that's not just like a mental assent. Yeah, I love my wife. Yeah, I love my wife. I love my wife. Done. It looks like an active, ongoing service and care. Just like in the Ephesians 5, it says, a guy who cares for his body. He's hungry. He cares for it. He looks out for the needs of his own body. He feeds his body. And he should be, do have that same attitude with his wife. What are her needs? What are the ways I can care for her? What are the ways I can meet those needs? One of the, um, let me read you an article. This just really hit me when it comes to guys and husbands. I've got too many papers here. I'll get it. All right, I'm going to freelance it. Here we go. 
you ever wonder where we got the phrase women and children first? Women and children first. There was a, a boat that went down near South Africa. It was going down, the Birkenhead, I think it was called. And uh, they had 600 soldiers on this boat. And then I think they had about 24 women and 29 children on the boat. And the captain, he told the soldiers, he said, the boat's starting to list, and one part of the boat, the front, I think, was coming up high, and the boat was going to go down. And he said, told the soldiers, I want all 600 of you, whoever isn't manning the pumps or anything else, I want you all stand on the part that's going up in the air so that the boat will stay stable longer. And they had almost no lifeboats on this boat. And so then he said, now we're going to get the women and the children into the cutter, the, the one, one of the lifeboats, and we're going to send them away. And you're, man, you're not to move. You're not to move till they're safely away. So they died. Rudyard Kipling wrote a poem about them, about the 600 men. Two years later, another boat disaster, this time off the coast of Newfoundland. That's where it was. And uh, this one ship ran into another ship, and the ship was going down. And the sailors on the ship who... uh, you know, saw this, you know, happening, they rushed and they got themselves into the lifeboats and they left 80 women and children on the boat to die. All across the world, the headlines about what happened in Newfoundland were just filled with outrage. Because there had been a precedent set that women and children first They go on the lifeboats. What do guys get? Well, we get to die. We get to die. This is about the 1850s. Both of these events, two years apart. Total contrast. So then in the 1900s, when the Titanic sinks, if you're a man, there's an 80% chance you die in that accident. If you're a woman... I think there's a 70% chance you survive. And if you're a child, I think it was just over 50% that you survive. So the Titanic is a very, you know, significant story for us. But the captain had said very clearly to his, his, his uh, officers, it's women and children first. It's got to be women and children first. And so men died. And women lived, and children lived. So a Swedish, um, a Swedish uh, study was made studying all these natural disasters through all these different years. And they found out that there was really only two of those disasters where women had the advantage to live. And it was the Birkenhead with the 600 soldiers, and it was the Titanic. But in every other disaster... It was either sort of even or it was heavily slanted towards the men. That whenever it comes to a race for lifeboats, the men would always win. 
they were bigger, they were stronger. They could navigate the passageways that were rocking and the debris that was in the way and the obstacles. So whenever it came down to a competition between men and women and children for lifeboats, men won. And the only reason... The only reason there was a difference with those two events was because of the captains. There were other scenarios where captains ordered women and children first, but the the sailors disregarded the orders. So whenever it's everybody for themselves, the women and the children lost. And I think that the whole part about the captain is really important and on two levels. If you have a sense that God's called you to play as a man some sort of leadership role in your family, then you have to understand that that leadership role is a death-to-self leadership role. I mean, we might romanticize things like the Titanic and think, well, if I was there, I'd put my wife and children on the boat and I would stand on the deck until it went down and I'd be a great hero. And that's sort of nice to romanticize those things. But what about today and the next day? As men, we're called to servant leadership. The disciples had gathered around Jesus and they were, and, and, uh, they were upset because two of them had asked their mom to go to Jesus and say, when you... Come into your kingdom. Can my two boys sit on either side of you? Can they have the most prominent place? And the other disciples were cheesed about that. They were so mad. And then Jesus sort of, he talks about the whole situation. He says, okay, you know how leadership works around here? You know how it works with people in our day and age? Is that when people are in leadership, they lord it over other people. He says, not so with you. In my kingdom, you want to be first, you be the servant. Even me, I didn't come to be served. The Lord of the universe didn't come to be served. I came to be a servant of all. So Jesus, through that, through the washing of his disciples' feet, through several things, he makes it unmistakably clear that leadership in, the, in his kingdom is always servant leadership. So as a husband, you don't walk on, ah, I get to, I'm in charge. I, I love it. I love, you know, just getting my own way. No, no, it's not about getting your own way. It's about being the first servant in the home. I want you to imagine just in your house. Imagine you go home today and someone's put up a really ornate throne in the house. Who should sit on it? I mean, you know, maybe the man should sit on it. Maybe the woman should sit on it. You know what Joshua said? Joshua said, you got to choose today what you're going to do. You can worship all sorts of things in this world. Different idols, different gods. You can worship money in our day and age. You can worship all sorts of things. But he said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That didn't mean Joshua was sitting on the throne. That meant Joshua said, I am leading in serving the Lord. Jesus sits on the throne of the home. And if there's any role differentiation between men and women, and and I, I lean towards that there is some, 
It's that the man should be the first servant of Jesus. Not that he has all the ideas of how to do that. In fact, I think in many homes, it's going to take the, 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 uh, de- a willpower, the determination, the, the, the yes to God that a man brings to say, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And then the next question might be, honey, how can we do that? Because the best leaders actually realize they don't have all the best ideas. They just have to be able to spot them when they come up. I think there'll be great testimonies sometimes in some homes where, where husbands will say, you know what? God got a hold of me at one point and made me see how selfish I was living and how I was, I was worshiping all sorts of things that weren't God. He got a hold of my life in such a way that he said, you know what? Our home has got to be about God. It's got to be about serving him. And I, I made a decision that day that we were going to serve the Lord well, I didn't really know how to walk that out. And so my wife and I together, we talked about it. She had tons of incredible ideas, way more great ideas than I did. And you know what? We just started doing those things, and it's really turned things around in our home. So if, if we could take that 33% that just says, well, God should be in charge. And change it to be like, I want to be a husband like Jesus was a husband to the church. If I'm going to be the husband God wants me to be, I want to come with the sacrificial love he showed when he laid down his life. And I want to lay down my life for my family. I want to serve and serve and serve and serve and go to bed exhausted and get up and do it again. I want my strength harnessed for good. And I want to, sh- I don't want to enact that drama for the world that Jesus didn't come to be served, but he came to serve. And he came to lay down his life. And I want to mimic that in how I am a husband and how I'm a father. I want to do it in such a way that so when my wife encounters me, there's something I've initiated that's so good, that's so from God, that she can respond easily to that. Even submit and respond to that in such a way that it creates this amazing dance that's going on in our marriage. This amazing dynamic that's going on. And God is glorified. And we're giving a visual to the world of what he is. You know, in Ephesians 5, I'll end with this. In Ephesians 5, he says, this is a mystery. This is a mystery. And it's not a mystery like you can't understand what marriage is about. It's just that for thousands of years, it was a mystery. But God, in his understanding of what was yet to come, He created marriage in this way. He structured life in this way. He set it up so society would be structured in this way because it's a great big pointing finger to Jesus. It wasn't that Jesus, God was saying, hey, this marriage thing, that'd be a great illustration of Jesus and the church. It's that God in relationship with his people is the ultimate reality And God put an illustration into society at the very beginning that would eventually point to 
the beauty of, a, of God sacrificing for his people. And we can, we can walk that out as we imitate him. Would you stand with me? Well, I didn't get through all my message, but I think we got somewhere. Lord, we come before you, and we just bring our relationships, and we bring us in relationships. And I know uh, so many times I, uh, I feel entitled. I feel I got old, you know, just selfish things brewing up in me. And God, I thank you for every time you've called me to repent, every time you've shown me my sin, every time my wife's shown me my sin. Lord, I thank you for every time uh, you have forgiven me and walked with me. And Lord, I just pray for every, every marriage relationship here. Lord, you have grace for us. You know the way that we're, we're, we are. You know the way that we are. And you are gracious and compassionate. You're slow to anger. You're abounding in love towards us. You really love us. Even when we're just sort of barely keeping our heads above water. Even when we're cobbling together a marriage in all sorts of different crazy ways. Even when the life that we're leading, it doesn't seem ideal. It seems very real. God, would you be honored by how we submit to you. Our ultimate submission is to you, Lord. And would you help us to reenact the drama of Jesus surrender and laying his life down for the church in our relationships? Let, let us embrace our the part that we have to play. Thank you that we live to die. We live to die to our selfishness. We live to die to our old ways of, of behavior and, 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 our, and our, our problematic ways of behavior. And we, we live for you to bring us into a whole new life with you, a whole new relationship with you, and a whole new relationship with each other. And thank you that your power is at work in us to do that. So we don't, we're not alone in that, but we can look to you. God, help me love them. Help me respect them. Help me care for them. Help me, ser- help me to serve them. And Lord, I pray that in our marriages, there'd just be a mutual serving that would please you, honor you. And you say, yeah, that looks like my kingdom coming. That looks my, like my will being done on earth as it is in heaven. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.